I was so struck when I first, first came uh, on campus to hear about the movement of prayer happening here. That started, the, maybe, I don't know that it started, but it was emphasized really that day of fasting and prayer that you did. And then how that has increased and how the Spirit of God is moving here. And I thought it was very interesting how it was coupled with your welcoming the refugees from Syria. This is how God works. Uh, it is about word and deed, as we're going to talk about a little bit later out of this scripture. But I also was reflecting this morning on renewal movements that have happened across the United States. And I was thinking about the second great awakening that literally began, much of it began at Yale, and how God uses and speaks through institutions of higher education and begins to lead in those ways. And I couldn't help but imagine, what would it be if God should choose Asbury Seminary to begin the third great awakening through our world today? And you know what it takes. It's humility, it's confession, and it's prayer before God. But it's also about action and living it out. So I don't know what God has in mind for you here at Asbury, but I'm praying that you won't stop praying and you won't stop seeking God and you won't stop worshiping him with your mind. You know, that's what you're doing. You're, you're serving God today most of the time here with your mind, and he loves that, your mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And so I'm grateful today for all that God is doing through you. I'm also grateful for the influence that Asbury Seminary has had on me personally. 1985, that's before most of you were born even, I was invited to come and uh, be an adjunct in church and society. Now at that time, that was before they were doing anything very creative. You know, God only met with you in class on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, I think it was. I know Joe could probably help me out on what those numbers were. But Mel Dieter and I got together, and I said, well, I can't move down. I lived in Grand Rapids, Michigan at the time. And I said, I can't move down. Does that help if that goes up a little more? Yeah, okay, there you go. So, um, so I said, well, what would happen if, if I could get the 30 clock hours in, and I would teach three hours on Friday night, six hours on Saturday, six hours on Monday, and we'd come and do this twice a semester? Well, let me check. Dr. McKenna was the president then. Let me check with Dr. McKenna. Let's see. So we did it. But I want you to know, we also developed a lot of community when we were together for those 12 hours during those three days. And I still hear from students at that time. But I was shaped myself during that time as I studied more and more and more uh, to be able to lecture more. So I'm not sure who learned the most, me or the students. But I was, did that for five years. And so at the community of Asbury Seminary truly formed me spiritually in many, many ways. And so. I'm incredibly grateful, and now I'm grateful to serve on the board. As I said earlier, uh, what happened with you in prayer and then the Syrian refugee family takes us to the text this morning that I want to uh, bring some thoughts from. As we see in this, this was written, of course, to the people at Rome. This is Paul, and I love Paul's words here. Paul could have said, hey, I want to tell you all that we're doing, you know, uh, as I, sadly enough, I do hear some pastors talk that way. Uh, and, uh, but he said, I will not venture to speak except 
what Christ has accomplished. And please remember that. You will be tempted to talk about what you have accomplished because you worked very hard, you thought, you've got a good strategic plan, you've got it all. But you know what? The result is only what Christ accomplishes. And you cannot forget that in the ministry of Jesus Christ in this world today, it is what Christ accomplishes through us. And I just want to say also that he longs to accomplish this through us. As I think about the beginning now, the 10 days prior to Pentecost, what a time this was for the disciples. They were confessing. They were trying to figure out what was going to happen. It looked as if everything had been lost. But on that great day of Pentecost, and I think we don't, we don't celebrate Pentecost enough. We kind of let that one just go under, and we big, do big things on Christmas and Easter. But Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit came. And when, when God put his Spirit in us, and you know, it's interesting when you take a look at it. We go clear through the Old Testament on up where God worked, for example, at creation. God spoke and uh, God breathed on the chaos of the universe. Creation happened and then God spoke. And then we can go clear on through scripture. We can go clear on through Jesus speaking for God. But since Pentecost, God no longer thunders out of heaven. He's chosen to speak through us. Now, if I were God, I would have never done it that way because I would have never trusted us. You can see what kind of leader I am here. But to think that God did that and he has chosen you and he's chosen me to speak to the world. And in many of the, of the councils that I sit on that are secular councils that are outside of the church, I constantly hear, we need to hear what the faith community can do. What do you have to say? We are lost without this. I was recently in uh, Abu Dhabi with the Council on Faith for the World Economic Forum. It's a very, uh, World Economic Forum is the wealthiest, most powerful people in the world that meet in Davos, Switzerland every January. And a few years ago, they decided they needed a council on faith. There are many councils, councils on banking, money, etc., oceans, etc. But they decided they needed a council on faith. And why? because they said, we're lost, we need some rudders here. And after I was there this last time and we heard the words from the fourth, what's coming along right now, the fourth industrial revolution, you can Google that and you can see what's already happening in our world today. And it, it has no value for people, it has no value for life. Uh, everything's about machines and everything will do it. And it's about people being perfect and it will create what they have said also, a new nativism, something that makes us all come back to only the people that we're, we're like etc. And then the head of that whole thing came into our Council on Faith and said, I want to tell you people, if we ever needed you, we need you now because this will be the only safety net that people can find. Now, my friends, your leaders, and God has chosen you at this time to lead in this world. Well, as we look at how Christ accomplishes his work, the first one we see here is word and deed. And I love it when I look at this because this was written to the people in Rome at that time. And uh, some historians believe that Junia was at Pentecost and came back as, and was one of the early church planters in Rome to plant the Christian church in Rome it weren't, uh, at that time. The believers, the new believers at that time, we're even called Christians, of course, the new believers at that time, following Christ, Christ's followers. And when we look at the culture of Rome, I, it's not unlike our culture today. But one of the things that the philosophers taught at that time was that if you showed any 
kind of mercy, you had a character flaw. Now think about going in and living the words of Jesus. Loving your neighbor as yourself, loving your enemies, praying for your enemies, uh, uh, loving the stranger, all of these kinds of things. You're going to live all that out in a culture that says if you show any kind of mercy or love, you have a character flaw, something is deeply wrong with you. I'm sorry, but I think I hear some of that out there in the political world these days, which, which, is, uh, which is deeply troubling to me. But at the same time, that says the people of God have to rise up and live like the people of God. And so we find then uh, in that early church uh, that uh, much of what was happening around them, and so life was no value at all. So people, children who were disabled would just be thrown to the side of the road. The, the followers of Jesus would go out and pick them up and bring them in and nurture them and take care of them, and they became part of the community. We find then that a plague, a few years later, a plague came along. Some people think it was smallpox. Many people died or had symptoms. They would throw the dead bodies on the side of the road. Christians would go out and gather the dead bodies and give people a proper burial because they said that uh, we were all in the made of the image of God. Then people who had symptoms would be thrown on top of the dead bodies, and the believers in Jesus, followers of Jesus, would go out and pick them up and bring them in. And we can follow this on and on and on. Rodney Stark uh, uh, really gives a great piece on this in his book, The Triumph of Christianity. More and more and more. And then we see how literally they lived by word and deed. And I want to make sure that you get this. Too many times we just say word or we say deed. But it has to be both. And I was reading the other day and I thought, what a great imagination this would be. What would happen if every person in the world heard the gospel through word and deed? Not impossible. And I believe God's calling us in those ways. And, it, it, and I believe the word and deed meets exactly in Amos where uh, scriptures where God says, let justice roll down like a river and righteousness as an ever-failing stream. It's got to be both. And at that nexus is where the power of God is and where we see transformation take place. And so when we follow this on through, we find that ultimately the Roman Empire could not resist the love and the power of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to give you a modern-day example of that. Uh, last year, I had the privilege to be in Cuba, and um, the Wesleyan Church has been in Cuba. We're a pre-revolutionary church there, uh, and so we had some of our people certainly suffered at the hands of the beginning of the revolution and so forth. But when we first started going back down there a few years ago, uh, we had to get permission through the Minister of Religious Affairs. So uh, the Minister of Religious Affairs wanted to know all about the church and who was leading this church. So when our a person there gave them my name, she said, a woman is leading the church? Now, you see, she couldn't grasp that because uh, if you've studied Marxist feminism, one of the things that Marxist feminism teaches is that the church oppresses women. So women need to get out of the church. And I totally understood that. I was with many of these people down in, in Nicaragua in 1985. And the Cuban feminists were in there saying, get out of the church. Primarily, they were talking about the Catholic church. Get out of the church. Get out of the church. It oppresses you. And I must say, I agreed with them on some of these kinds of things. But this, this, this woman who was the minister of religious affairs could not quite grasp how a woman could be the head of a church. So she said, well, when she comes down here, I want to meet her. So, okay, 
So I was there last year, just the week before President Obama began to, to loosen our relationship with Cuba, but didn't know where that was going at that time. So I went to Havana after we'd done a lot in the center part of the country and went to meet her. And uh, it was a great time to meet, and we had great discussion, and I did bone up on Marxist feminism, and I knew some writers and so forth, so I, we could begin to have a conversation about this. And uh, then, she, I'll never forget, she folded her hands, bowed her head, and she said, now, I am not a Christian, but she said, your church is what I think a church ought to be. And she started in. She said, your church cares for young people. Your church educates young people. Your church lifts up young people. Your church cares for old people. Your church builds houses for old people. You care for them. You love the ground, she said. You have a communal farm. She said, I've seen you bring in wheelchairs for disabled people. And then she said, every time we have a crisis in our country, you're here to help us. And then she said something that really stunned me. She said, you ordain. Now, I had been down there to ordain some new pastors. And I thought, this is very fascinating. Why would a, why would a communist care about ordaining? And she said, because you educate your people first. She valued the education, the ministerial education. And then she said, because of what your church has been and done, three years ago, we granted your church land. And, and I knew that, of course. Never done that before to a church. And then two years ago, we granted your church permission to build a church, which is the first church to be built in Cuba in 52 years. And I thought, the people that have lived this out, just like the people in Rome, the word and deed, they lived out the word, they lived out the deed. Yes, some were in prison. They were out of prison, still praising God, word and deed. She did say, she said, now you need to know that two weeks ago we granted the Catholics permission to build a cathedral. And I was just so happy that we beat the Catholics on that one. <laughs> word and deed. It goes together. Then the second one we see here is signs and wonders. We cannot get away from the fact that God still does signs and wonders. But we follow Jesus, not the TV preacher. Okay, you know what, you can hear, already hear I have a thing about that. But it's what God is doing. Signs and wonders, and you know throughout the New Testament when people would ask, what is the sign? What is the sign? And Jesus would say, I am the sign. And the signs and wonders point to Jesus. It's been my privilege to be around the world in a lot of places and in Muslim countries as well, and to see how God is breaking through the subconscious of people, through visions and dreams, and people who have never heard Jesus' name are compelled by a vision or a dream that they've heard uh, they've experienced it. They've got to say, I've got to find out who this is. I had the privilege to be in the country of Azerbaijan, and I was, which is right above Iran and right over by Iraq, and it's a, a non-proselytizing country, of course. And I was in a cell group there, and this woman was sitting beside me, and I just thought, I wonder how she got here. You know, I was just curious. How do you know? To, you know, there's no flashing sign that says, "Come and learn about Jesus tonight." You know, and so she said, "Well, I had this dream." And in this dream came this most compelling person. And I just kept having this dream and having this dream. And I would ask people, and they didn't know who it was. But finally, someone said to me, 
If you will go to the fourth floor on Tuesday night at such and such an apartment building, six o'clock, knock on the door, tell them I sent you, you'll find it out. That sounds like a mystery, doesn't it? Or an old song of some kind. But do you know what? She said, I came here and I found out it was Jesus. And I've been here ever since. I was in Egypt a, a couple of years ago to meet with some of our, our leaders there, and I wasn't sure. The Arab Spring has been a very bitter time, and there's been persecution of Christians and so forth. And I met with about 60 pastors that afternoon, and I was just curious, how are you doing? What's happening? And one of them said, well, the Arab Spring broke our imagination of what God can do. And I was a little nervous. I thought, ooh, I didn't intend to hear this negative stuff, you know. And then they went on to say, since the Arab Spring, four million Muslims have come to Jesus. And they said, our imagination was broken because our imagination was too small. And I say to you, let God break your imagination. I keep praying, Lord, break my imagination, that it becomes your imagination of what you want to do, how Christ accomplishes his work, word and deed, signs and wonders. And I'm forever grateful to Craig Keener, for his book on books on miracles. It is, a, it is the best. I keep telling people about it, and I don't know if Craig's here this morning or not, but known him back in, when he was in Philadelphia. But I, I, it's one of the best piece, pieces of literature on every part of what it means of miracles, uh, it, sociologically, biblically, theologically, um, and culturally. Marvelous piece of literature that's out there that I trust that all of you are reading and grasping. I know it's a big read, uh, but it's good. And then we find the third way, but it's all wrapped up in the power of the Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit, the three, how Christ accomplishes his work, word and deed, signs and wonders, through the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, it, that's the only way it happens. Now, I've done a lot of work in a lot of places in the world, and I keep saying, you know, if, God, if the world could be fixed with influence and money, the United Nations could have done that a long time ago. But it's the power of the Spirit that brings the transformation. And so as you are here at Asbury Seminary, and I want you to know I am a true Wesleyan through and through, and I can't get convinced any other way because I believe that's the right way. <laughs> is prevenient grace. God's already out there working. And the power of the Spirit to move through us and to, for God to do his work through that. And of course, we see great examples of that with John Wesley through England. I will be in secular circles and I'll start telling the story of John Wesley in England. And people are stunned. I was just recently at the White House and I told the story and someone who's a quite a powerful person in Washington came up to me afterwards and said, you know, you talk about John Wesley, and I just want you to know, sometimes I think I'm going to cry when you talk about it because it gives me so much hope. Well, now, it is about the power of the Spirit. It's not about John Wesley personally, but it's about the power of the Spirit through a man who believed and through, who did his work, and God's not finished. Many John Wesleys and, and, and female John Wesleys in this place. So I didn't want to, I want to make sure about that. But Joe Dongell, whom I love and is one uh, part of our denomination, but I love his work, and he says in his paper, the love poured out by God through the Spirit is a mighty force set loose in the deepest chambers of the heart and community, manifesting a host 
of powerful internal and external effects. Can we grasp that? No, it's, it's, it's more than even what we can grasp, but God, it's that power of the love. It's not this the cell phone conversation. I'm in a lot of airports, so I listen to a lot of cell phone conversations. <laughs> kind of get bored. So, oh, what are you talking about over here? And I always hear all these conversations ended with, love you, love you. And I thought, boy, if this many people loved everybody, we wouldn't have any problem in this world. Everybody says that. But it's not that kind of love you we're talking about here. This is the mighty force of the love of God pouring through this world and pouring through us. And Wesley spoke of this as infused love as expelling sin from the heart. And I say expelling sin and evil from the culture as well as he moves through us because we are to overcome evil with good, not just little good deeds, but overcome evil with the power of God. And he's calling us to do that. Probably a man that represented this so strongly to me was a man by the name of Samuel Justin in Gujarat, India. Gujarat, India is a state that has non-conversion laws. And I uh, visit there. We have in the Wesleyan Church about 50 churches. Now, when, how a non-conversion law happens, if someone comes to Christ, you have to go to the courts and prove that you are not coerced into this. I'm sure all of you who are going out to pastor would love to pastor in that kind of context. Very difficult. But I'm telling you, every time I'm there, I'm with these pastors, and I, I love them more and more and respect them more and more. To be able to still preach the gospel in word and deed and live it out in this kind of context. They always start every morning uh, singing, I have, I have decided to follow Jesus. And I can never get through that song because I'm looking at what their mission is in following Jesus, and many times I have only sung it just as a little ditty. But the power of what that means to, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. Well, Samuel Justin has uh, is, is now gone on to be with the Lord last year, but the last time I was with him, he was about 85 years old, about that tall, small man. He was a street boy on the streets of M Mumbai. And an Indian Christian couple picked him up at age five and raised him. He said to me one day when I was there, he said, did you know that I was a blind boy on the streets of Mumbai? And I said, no, I didn't know that. He said, yes, and one day my adopted mother just said to me, it's not God's will for you to be blind. And so she just put her hands on my eyes, prayed, and after she finished praying, I opened my eyes, and I've been able to see ever since. I thought, my, 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 what, what faith. So he has been a stalwart in this, the uh, state of Gujarat. Well, one day, and won many people to the Lord, and he has, has led these churches and has a, a Bible college and so forth. But one day, a radical Hindu sect decided that he was too powerful for them, and they put a price on his head. Now, you've got to know, 85 years old, he's about that tall, kind of all bent over. And so his sons immediately came and said, Daddy, you've got to stay in the house. Don't you get out. We don't want you killed. He said, if they kill me, they kill me. I'm not going to stop doing what I've been doing. So, of course, I would be the same as these children. I'd be worried, and they were worried, and, but, but he didn't stop. Well, some, one day, someone went to the authorities in, uh, in the capital, or the, uh, area, the leadership part of the state of Gujarat, and uh, said, you know, we're supposed to be secular, and so you better just throw some 
some secret police on that preacher so we don't get in trouble with the head folks in Delhi. So they did. Samuel had no idea who the secret police were. He had no idea where they were. He didn't know anything about it. And he continued to do what he was going to do. And he continued on and on and on. About a year later, I had the privilege to be there. And that Sunday morning, we finished the service. There were about 1,000 people there that morning, which was a huge crowd for a place with non-conversion laws. And he said, now we're going to baptize 37 people this morning who are coming from other faiths, which is the code word for coming from Hinduism to Christianity. And he said, and Joanne Lyon is going to help me baptize this morning. Now, it's against the law in India for foreigners to baptize. I knew that. And so I said to Samuel, the courageous person that I am, well, Samuel, are we going to do this inside? And he said, no, 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 we're going outside for the whole world to see. <laughs> so as we walked across that dusty place from the church over here I spotted, we would call it in this country, like a great big horse tank and a huge cross on the end. I mean, there was no doubt this was Christian. <laughs> and so I followed him, but as we were going, he's always a quiet-spoken person. He leaned down to me and he said, Now, Joanne, you need to know, we're baptizing two couples this morning, and these men are men who've been with the secret police. I couldn't believe it. I said, Samuel, do you mean to tell me that these are men who have been following you around all the time? They didn't know. You didn't know they were there. You had no idea where they were. But today, because of the power of the Spirit of God so strongly from you, they're willing to give up their ancestral religion. They're willing to give up their jobs. They're willing to give their all to Jesus Christ. So humble as he is, he bowed his head and he said, I guess so. My friends, this morning, I asked myself that question almost daily. If someone were following me around today and I didn't know all about it, would the power of the Spirit of God be so compelling coming from me that it would have a person leave everything to follow Jesus. I ask you that question today. May God be with you. We're going to worship the Lord by singing, How Great Thou Art. God bless you.